Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved in drugs. To the extent that drug use presents problems for individuals or society, those problems are made worse and more intractable when people who use drugs are treated as others and ignored, stigmatized, and even brutalized. Higher education, if you'll pardon the pun, has changed a lot since the dark ages when I was at university. Back in the last century, the joke was, don't drop acid, take it pass fail. But as a Nobel Prize winning poet once wrote, the times, they are a-changing. So that you, dear listener, can more easily associate names with voices, I'll ask my guests to introduce themselves. Guests, would you please introduce yourselves? Hello, my name is Brian Pace. I am an affiliate scholar with the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at The Ohio State University's College of Social Work. I'm also a lecturer in the Department of Plant Pathology at OSU, uh, where I teach a class called Psychedelic Studies. Um, and I am the Politics and Ecology Editor for Symposia, which is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit research organization, media outlet, and watchdog in the drug uh, policy and culture arena. And I'm Nishay Devineau. I'm a postdoctoral associate at the Institute for Research and Sensing at the University of Cincinnati. I'm also an affiliate scholar with the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at The Ohio State University, and I'm the Medicine Society and Culture Fellow with Symposia. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, so, oh God, where to start? Okay, well, I know. Pretend that I'm just some 60-year-old whose jaw dropped to the floor upon hearing that there was such a thing, and tell me about psychedelic studies. Yeah, so I, I got involved in the field back in 2010. Um, I was already seeing, you know, pri privately interested in, in psychedelics on my own, just not openly about it. Um, and I went to to graduate school studying literature because I was trying to kind of think about the uh, wild sorts of experiences that came up in psychedelic experiences and how to think about them as stories, but, you know, hadn't really been open about that. And I went to a my first psychedelics conference in 2010 and just had this really mind-opening experience in the sense that I, I found out for the first time then that there was this whole psychedelic science renaissance happening in, in, in sciences with psychology and clinical research happening uh, at, at universities. And in that moment, I realized that it would be a great opportunity to, you know, bring all the other disciplines in it as well, because science doesn't have any kind of monopoly over psychedelic experience. And so um, from that time forward, I've been kind of advocating for other, you know, especially I have a humanities background, so more disciplines to get involved. And um, and Brian and I just uh, wrapped up the Psychedemia Psychedelics Conference at The Ohio State University, which was in, intended to do exactly that, bringing all these disciplines together. We did it for the first time in 2012. Um, this is this is the kind of the follow-up conference. But I've been teaching psychedelic studies classes since about 2011, and Brian also teaches at OSU. Yeah, and just uh, briefly, you know, I, uh, my training is as a plant evolutionary ecologist, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about things like uh, food, ethnobotany, climate change. I spent a lot of time doing field work in southern Mexico and such. 
Um, and, you know, I started teaching classes about cannabis and then uh, moved along into psychedelic studies as these were sort of long part of my personal interest and one of the reasons why I was studying mycology and plant chemistry and ethnobotany in the first place. So um, now I teach this class and um, Dr. Devineau's uh, work on this is one of the first essays that my, my students read. It's fascinating stuff. It's like I say, the times they are changing. Um, tell me more. The Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education, both of your affiliate scholars. Tell me about the center. What's it do? Um, well, so it's a multidisciplinary center that's uh, just gotten a, a start, but it, from the name, you can tell that it's interested in both research and education. Um, so... You know, currently there are some uh, clinical trials that are being planned uh, that will involve you know, using uh, psilocybin for the treatment of mental health disorders. Um, we're also developing educational curricula uh, that can be accessed for uh, people who are looking for professional development uh, for licensure uh, in terms of just like getting continuing education credits, but um, starting with uh, the course that I teach and a course that uh, Dr. Devineau uh, has taught, we are in the process of building out a, um, like a five course uh, credit, uh, four credit college credit certificate that is accessible to both undergraduates and graduate students um, in the uh, realm of psychedelic studies from an accredited university. Oh, and one more, um, Symposia, it's a nonprofit. Uh, tell me, tell, uh, tell me more about Symposia. So the current iteration of Symposia, the current team, it's been a, a, around for, for longer, but Ryan, do you remember around when we started working together, <laughs> what year that was? I mean, we started talking towards the end of 2018, and I think we started hatching a plan for a new incarnation of Symposia as a, a nonprofit um, in 2019. And in terms of like the the kinds of things that we, we work on, um, you know, in in some ways, we play a role as a watchdog, and other uh, other ways, we're a think tank that is uh, spending time, you know, looking at what is unfolding in the cultural and policy realm with regard to psychedelics, but also, um, you know, society's reimagining of what to do with drugs generally. Um, and so, we we don't shy away from some of the more difficult questions. Uh, and we're not quiet about, um, you know, bringing them up you know, where we think they, they need to be considered more deeply. And we're, we're kind of analogous in some ways to ProPublica, if you're, if you're familiar with them, in the sense that we do journalism and research in the public interest. So that's the mm -hmm. kind of consistent theme is because right now with psychedelics, there's a lot of money and power kind of circling you know more so than there was in the field when i first started certainly just in the past few years it's it's been hailed as the future of mental health care and you know there's the, the this prospect of this new booming industry and so there's a lot of kind of um you know tactics and strategies afoot that are not necessarily in the best interest of people but you know in the interest of enriching people at the top. And that's something that we're kind of working to to just make sure that all of the information is accessible and and kind of push back against some of the tactics that are working towards monopolization and other other things like that. Yeah, very much interested in transparency. Um, you know, some of the journalism that uh, our outfit has put out on the topic of corporate delics. Uh, so, you know, it's a 
essentially these psychedelic corporations that are looking for uh, a way to you know, gobble up market share, to control the market, to um, you know, to dictate what kinds of futures are possible with regard to uh, how people can legally experience psychedelics. Um, and, you know, in terms of who is doing that, I, we feel that the public has, uh, you know, a right to know uh, what the, the, the sort of resumes of some of these uh, outfits and individuals look like. No, that's a lot of the reason I'm, that I've asked you on, actually, is to talk about some of this. Uh, I've been involved in drug policy reform at a, at a really surprisingly high level for, um, again, pardon the pun, for several decades now. Um, I, I, I view reform through a human rights and social justice lens, always have. I, I think that largely thanks to right-wing drug warriors like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, a lot of people associate drug policy reform with the left. But really for a very long time, several leading proponents of reform but from back in the 70s and 80s and the 90s came from the right wing. People like Bill Buckley in his National Review, Richard Cowan, Milton Friedman, Ron Paul. You know, I was a lefty hanging out on the on the outskirts, you know, along with Jack Herrer and the Yippies for, for a long time, basically on the left wing side. Wow, the sexism on this. I mean, it was just it was a different time and we've come a long way since then, hopefully. Anyway, I digress. The point is, for one reason or another, drugs and drug policy reform got associated with the political left. But perception is not the same as objective reality. And that brings me to one of the things I wanted to ask you about. You're co-authors of an article entitled Right-Wing Psychedelia, Case Studies in Cultural Plasticity and Political Pluripotency, which was published December 2021 in the journal Frontiers in Psychology. Um, Talk me through this. Um, Well, this... This article was written as a uh, an intervention in an ongoing dialogue, one uh, that has been going on for a long time, culturally speaking, but uh, more recently started to make inroads into the peer-reviewed literature uh, with, you know, roughly, you know, uh, let's say half a dozen papers that uh, were out at the time that uh, spoke to this idea that psychedelics were going to make a person more um, more liberal, less authoritarian, um, more environmental, uh, in a word, more more progressive, uh, was the sort of emergent narrative coming out of uh, a number of these studies, some of which were survey-based, uh, others were looking at individuals in, in um clinical trials, but most of them just like asking questionnaires of people who have taken uh, one psychedelic or several psychedelics over their their lifetime and, you know, asking them other questions about how they they uh, they felt about politics or about nature. That's sort of the structure of what what was going on. Um, As a result, you know, you saw a lot of these articles popping up in the media saying, you know, psychedelics are going to help fight fascism or save the world um all of which you know if that's your sentiment as a personal uh you know private individual that's great um i think it's more problematic when that uh kind of sentiment becomes uh reified in the peer-reviewed literature so at that point that was more or less the one of the reasons why we decided to uh, respond uh, as such, you know, both in in writing and then later we were invited to do this as as a, a peer reviewed article. So both Nishay and I had written on these topics uh, outside of of peer review. Part of the reason that we were 
looking at this as well was just the I mentioned already the financial interests that are getting involved in the psychedelics field and there's there had been a a kind of growing push by some of the people on the corporate side to kind of wave away criticisms of their strategies on the basis that we need to get psychedelics to as many people as quick as possible in order to say, ensure the future of the planet and humanity. And I'm not even exaggerating, like that's exactly what some people say. And so they'll specifically say that psychedelics will solve climate change, it will solve political polarization. And so it's like, who are you to question what I'm doing? Do you want the world to burn up? Do you want everyone to die in a massive war? Or do you want to be quiet and let me do what I'm trying to do? And so our point is that looking at the cross-cultural and historical records, it, it matters extraordinarily the context in which these substances are are taken and they're not just going to fix them they're a powerful tool arguably but they're not going to automatically fix things um you know regardless of the way that they're used so we wanted to make, make sure that there was more sensitivity to you know psychedelics can be extremely dangerous especially when used by dangerous people yeah this is something in the in the paper we termed the um the trojan horse theory of change um the idea being that you know working with say uh billionaires like peter Thiel to fund your corporate outfits um getting money from billionaire right-wing uh billionaire you know the uh, rebecca mercer and and using it to fund psychedelic research like these are all totally acceptable you know means justifying uh the ends uh if you you know, believe that psychedelics are going to uh, de facto pharmacologically, if they're going to uh, change people's minds, as the, you know, sort of the title of a popular book on this uh, indicates, you know, that this is going to um, directionally influence people to become more progressive, that that that, that makes a lot of um, a lot of decisions easier, more acceptable. Um, but but it's not so comp- it's, it's not so simple. We're listening to part one of my conversation with Nishay Devineau, PhD, who's a postdoctoral associate at the Institute for Research and Sensing at the University of Cincinnati, where she studies bioethical perspectives on the nascent field of psychedelic medicine and also the Medicine Society and Culture Research Fellow at Symposia, and Brian Pace, PhD, a lecturer who teaches psychedelic studies at The Ohio State University and also the Politics and Ecology Editor at Symposia. Doctors Devineau and Pace are also affiliate scholars at the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at The Ohio State University College of Social Work. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McEvoy. Welcome back. Let's continue that conversation with Dr. Nishé Devineau and Dr. Brian Pace. Well, I suppose it's not helped to, I mean, I, 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 did I mention I've been doing this for a while? And in the course of that, I've had a chance to meet a number of the uh, number of the psychonauts. I mean, I mentioned to you, Brian, earlier, the um, I was, I, I remember meeting Rick Doblin back in the mid-80s when he was just founding maps i know i have friends who are still upset at him because they think that 
um, by publicizing uh, MDMA back in those days. He may have uh, friends who actually think that his publicizing MDMA is one of the reasons the DEA put it in Schedule One. But uh, but of course that's unfair. Um, probably the um, and a lot of these a lot of these early psychedelics these guys you know they're good they're good progressives you know they're liberal they're uh, they're, uh, they're they're they you know they're they're nice people and um, and I'm sure you know and uh, part of the problem might be simply the well if you folks could just learn to think like me everything would be so much better try these drugs they'll help you think like me and it's sort of a hmm. Sorry, there was a there was a thought going along there, but I just it's gone now. Um, I mean, one of the things that we we point to in this is all of the uh, counterexamples to this this idea that psychedelics are going to make everybody more progressive. You know, we do so as uh, using case studies, looking at uh, various examples of individuals who either. Um, you know, took psychedelics and then later became radicalized uh, to some sort of conservative or far-right ideology, or were already radicalized to such ideologies and took psychedelics and perhaps continued to t take psychedelics, and it, it didn't, you know, make these individuals, um, you know, less extreme. Um, and so this is, uh, we, we select from many contemporary examples, looking at, for example, uh, Proud Boys founder Gavin McGuinness, uh, you know, who at one point was giving his audience of mostly young disaffected males um, advice on how to weather a bad trip um, to like literal uh, like OG tripping buddy of uh, Dr. Albert Hoffman, the inventor of LSD, um, Ernst Jünger, uh, a wehrmarked captain of the German army who uh, was a censor uh, for the Nazis in occupied France. Um, so, you know, Junger was was uh, somebody who was, uh, well, quintessentially far right, and these kinds of experiences were filtered through that lens for him. Like none of this is particularly new. Tune in, turn on, tune in, turn on, drop out. Of course, that doesn't. Yeah. Not everybody thinks the same. Um, it's hmm, no, it's just it's it's fascinating. I mean, you have the you have the image of you know the great of deadheads and people in tie dye. How could somebody in a tie dye and a headband with long hair be uh, be problematic? And and it's like and it's as I it, back when my hair I sometimes I sometimes go have a I sometimes have a buzz cut I try to remind people that you can't really judge a person's politics by the length of their hair but um yeah but, sure <laughs> as a guy Sorry. with a shaved head I I think I would uh, <laughs> co-sign that sentiment ah uh, yeah you know I I I I apologize I forgot as I was saying that I'm oh that oh but yeah, appearance. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating stuff. Now, now you know, as you know, of course, I I live here in Oregon. That's we're the first state to legally allow psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Other states are starting to follow suit. The feds are even starting to seriously consider allowing the use of psychedelics for mental health treatment. Um, sounds like progress. There's perception and there's objective reality. 
I mean, you mentioned the corporatization, and um, when we legalized weed years ago, there was this initially back in those there was this beautiful image of hundreds of hippies and old time growers and 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 Rossman and all these kinds of folks finally being able to cash in after years of outlaw living. You know, but in reality, a lot of corporate players got into the business. There's money from big tobacco and big alcohol, along with money from some really shady players around the world being laundered through investment funds and LLCs chartered in corporate and banking secrecy havens and human rights abusers. I mean, it's, 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 it's an interesting rogues gallery. And now, of course, there's serious discussion about legalizing psychedelics. And the focus is on the patients. I mean, all those advertisements those pharma companies have, they're doing it all for patients. Why can't we just see they're doing it all for patients? Right. The deep-pocketed patients. Anyway, the focus is on patients, people with PTSD and other mental health issues who might be helped, and it's good, and that's, it's just a part of the story. Um, and that's one of the other ones I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Devano, your co-author of an article entitled Dark Side of the Shroom, Erasing Indigenous and Counterculture Wisdoms with Psychedelic Capitalism and the Open Source Alternative, which was published recently in the journal Anthropology of Consciousness. Um, talk me through that one. Yeah, well, so it, it develops off of, you know, similar concerns with <laughs> the ways that capitalism tends to... Um, you know, essentially colonize things. And so, and just as you were talking before, I wanted to mention as well, it's related. Um, so D Douglas Rushkoff is someone who's written about the fact that like the early internet, for example, there was a lot of utopian optimism about the ways that the internet could connect people and be a democratizing force across the world. And that potential was always there, but <clears throat> through, you know, the way that money organized around the internet, we're in a place today where suddenly these vast multinational corporations control huge swaths of the internet with massive implications for, you know, democracy and the ways that people can, the free exchange of ideas, et cetera. So we're in a similar situation, I would argue, with psychedelics in the sense that the systems, you know, on the kind of global scale, there's always been psychedelic use, especially in indigenous communities and then in the countercultural, for, for example. But we're at a, a stage now where people are attempting to really build in legal and regulatory systems for access. And if we're not careful about how that happens, it might be built out in a way that just enriches the the wealthy and funnels uh, funnels wealth to the top of society. And one of the things that we've looked at across our research is the idea that, you know, if you if you look at the drivers of things like political polarization, the rise of fascism, climate change, inequality of, in society is actually the big problem here. And so there's a bit of a bait and switch going on where these, you know, aspiring unicorn companies with psychedelic medicine are saying, you know, don't don't question what we're doing, we're going to save the world, but actually structurally they're participating in that same funneling of wealth to the top that is actually causing these problems in the first place. So in Dark Side of the Shroom, we really advocate for, you know, looking to community-based models of psychedelic use where you don't have this rigid hierarchy and people kind of interpreting experiences for you and you need to have a guide, you know, there's, there's all kinds of community um, forms of access that, you know, can, can, can contribute to building stronger communities without having to have this, you know, someone in telling you the specific way that you need to trip. So, I mean, in general, we argue for, that's, you know, in symposia, et cetera, for a, you know, multiplicity of forms of access. If people want to 
you know, experience psychedelics in a certain way, that's fine. But at the end of the day, a lot of the people who are going into the field have been people who were tripping with their friends. They weren't in clinical trials. And so, you know, a lot of the financial interest behind psychedelics, they want to make it so that you have to do it in this rigid, you know, specific medicalized way, but that's not historically been the way that people access psychedelics for the most part. And so um, just kind of pushing back against that, the trend in that direction. Fascinating. And you mentioned the internet, of course, that was what well, the internet was originally developed by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. I mean, it was originally a military application in military and intelligence agencies have always been involved with it. I think that's part, it goes back to the other, uh, with psychedelics, some of the early pioneers, the early psychonauts, a lot of them were really progressive people, decent, you know, good, you know, good progressive kinds of lefties who were, who were involved. There were some. And, you know, I think that we associate with the, we associate the drug with the, with those folks, and they probably associate it too, if people could just be, you know, think like me. And probably some of the early, I mean, Outside of the the military types, there were some decent people doing uh, doing work on the internet. There's some really good progressive people working on the uh, working on the uh, net and for freedom and all that. But again, it's a military and in- intelligence agency uh, application, and a lot of those people yeah. were also involved. So it's not. It's yeah. just that. Huh. Interesting. Anyways, Doug, Doug, I want to I want to put a pin that real quick because I mean I I would. I would argue, and I, I think that we do in, in our paper, that, you know, some of the earliest people to experiment with psychedelics were like sort of blue-blooded aristocrat types and uh, the military, you know, for decades. Um, uh, I, I would argue that the psychedelic renaissance has yet to really reckon with the fact that, you know, decades before uh, what we commonly associate with psychedelics, tie-dye and the Grateful Dead and such, uh, there was literal decades of institutional control of psychedelics uh, and some of the, the worst human rights abuses that, uh, in my opinion, are imag- imaginable were hatched during that time with very little you know, public discussion because a lot of these these documents uh, remain sealed today. And now, in many instances, some of the same you know universities and institutions. Uh, what are we talking about here? Like the Pentagon and uh, places like Hopkins and Mount Sinai. Uh, these are the same names that were involved in MK Ultra. So, um, you know, the politics and the, the the sort of background of what's going on in the past informs uh, informs the the present. We we would. It's fascinating stuff. As I say, it's it's exciting to think, and we've got all these images and Oregon. I mean, Grateful Dead, please. Um, even even Republicans will make deadhead jokes, favorable, positive kinds of deadhead jokes. Tucker Carlson's a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. Oh, you had to tell me that. Oh, he, he's gone gone to like fifty or so more shows, probably more now that now we're here. Big deadhead. That was part one of my conversation with Nishay Devineau, Ph.D., who's a postdoctoral associate at the Institute for Research and Sensing at the University of Cincinnati and is also the Medicine, Society, and Culture Research Fellow at Symposia, and Brian Pace, Ph.D., who's a lecturer who teaches psychedelic studies at The Ohio State University and also the Politics and Ecology Editor at Symposia. Now, again, that was part one of our conversation. The good news is you don't have to wait another month to hear part two. 
The bad news is that you will have to find my other radio show, which isn't really bad news, certainly not from my perspective. Anyway, you can catch part two on the current edition of the other radio show I produce, Century of Lies, which is also syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Easiest way to find it, just Google my name, McVeigh, and the name of the show, Century of Lies. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Nishay Devineau and Dr. Brian Pace. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Thank you.